Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. That biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or words blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline, and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. When he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what He promises, and accomplishes. So clever, we behold His endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got. See the importance of biblical theology. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Theology Matters. I am your host, Devin Pallou, and I have my lovely bride on the line. Melissa Pallou, are you there? I'm here. Welcome, everyone, to the show. Yes, 
Very glad everybody could come back and join us for another uh, edition. We've been doing the show now for probably, well, I guess going close close to a year now, huh? Isn't that right? Yeah, some, yeah, about there. Yeah, we've had uh, had a good run of it so far. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. Um, Melissa, give us a little update on baby Ellie. I will. She um, just turned two months old, and um, she is growing really fast, and um, she is a really good baby and enjoys being around people. She enjoys uh, listening to conversations. She's very alert, um, very observant, and um, loves to giggle as well. So it's been really, uh, really a, a pleasure. She's such a blessing. Yeah, we actually had the uh had the honor last night of going out and eating dinner with a couple of good friends, uh Frank Turek and a good friend from the United Kingdom, Jonathan McClatchy. And uh, he's working on an internship down here at the Discovery Institute. Uh he actually went to Seattle but flew in here to Charlotte uh for a little bit last night and today and uh Little baby Ellie just loved being around all that apologetics last night, didn't she? She did. She was, you know, just content and um, really observant. And it was a great time last night. Um, Jonathan, as I mentioned, Jonathan McClatchy, our friend, is on his internship at Discovery Institute, and he is a very young man, um, early 20s, and has received his master's degree. And he's, um, I think he has a degree in biology as well, right, Devin? He's got um uh definitely been studying science for a very long time and he is really going to be one of the the top names and thinkers in the intelligent design movement um we were just picking his brain asking questions and he was just um just amazing he he had an answer for everything and so he's going to really give the evolutionist and the naturalist um a run for their money <laughs> and he already is Definitely, definitely. So keep him in your prayers that everything goes well with him, and uh, and uh, hopefully we'll be seeing uh, more of him. I'd like to get him on the show periodically just to kind of give us a uh, an update on what's going on in the uh, creation, evolution, intelligent design world. He, uh, he writes articles on evolution uh, news and views, so mm-hmm. check him out there. And we did have Jonathan on about probably probably six weeks ago. We had Jonathan on to discuss intelligent design. So um, check that show out in the archives because it was a wonderful show, very informative. Right, right. And you can actually, if you if you have not liked us on Facebook, um, I would recommend that you do. Uh, go to facebook.com/slash theology matters with the Palouse. Facebook.com/slash theology matters with the Palouse. There. Uh, you'll find articles that we put up through the week, as well as videos, um, but also uh, our podcast. And we've had some very, very good guests on. We've um, had Paul Copan, we've had Norm Geisler, we've had Shandon Guthrie. Uh, we've done a few debates, and we actually have uh, a few more in store for you guys. So go on over to Facebook and like us, share the page. Um, because ultimately, you know, our desire is to get the information out. So mm-hmm. if you have friends that are, are not saved and uh, don't know Christ, you know, it's a good way to to, to uh, 
share the information with them because we have some of the top people on our show. Right. Um, a lot of great discussion. A lot of We try to cover a wide variety of topics. If there are topics, by the way, that you guys want to hear on the show that you have not um, or certain topics that we've covered that you want us to cover more, um, feel free to email us at theologymattersradio at gmail.com um, or send us a message on Facebook. Um, that way we'll know what, what issues are important to you all so that we can cover those and get Yes, to cover this topic. So um, let us know, you know, what, what you'd like to hear more of on the show. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we've got some shows. Uh, we got, we're got we going to do some, some more stuff on uh, the cults. I've got a, a show lined up in July on Mormonism. And uh, I think we're going to do another one on the Jehovah's Witnesses. We, we've done a couple shows on them, but we like to, uh, to kind of keep it fresh and because uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are, are very popular in America, and uh, you guys are going to be very likely to have them show up on your doorstep. So we want to be able to provide you guys answers on what to do when they come. Mm-hmm. So, Melissa, before we uh, before we jump into our little article, uh, maybe tell the people uh, who we have on tonight and, and the topic we're going to be discussing. Awesome. Yeah, we have um, Dr. Wynn Cordelin, and he is a professor of philosophy, um, actually Professor Emeritus um, at uh, Taylor University, um, professor of philosophy and religion there. Um, and he, um, well, normally he was in the classroom, but he's now Professor Emeritus. But he has um, taught for many, many years on the topics of philosophy and religion. Um, he has authored numerous books. Um, namely uh, Philosophy of Religion uh, with Dr. Geisler, Neighboring Faiths, which was just updated, and we'll discuss that book on the air with him, and a a number of other books, including um, a book on Islam. And um, so we're going to actually discuss the topic of Islam today, which we haven't covered yet, so we're really excited about that. And um, like I said, Dr. Uh, Cordelin did um, add a a chapter of uh, a section on Islam in his updated uh, book. Um, so we will, um, like I said, diving into that topic um, with Dr. Cordelin. And he's uh, a good friend of ours as well, so we're really, really excited to have him with us later. Hey, man, we are. He'll be here probably about 6.30, um, which is about 20 minutes from, from now. So I wanted to go over this article uh, that appears <clears> – <throat> in the Christian post, and, and maybe, Melissa, if you want, you could post it uh, on the Theology Facebook page. Okay. Uh, just for people maybe who want to follow along. Okay. But the article the article is entitled, uh, Are You Really Interpreting the Bible Literally? Are You Really Interpreting the Bible Literally? <clears throat> this is uh, this is a question that comes up a lot, and uh, and I think... A lot of times, um, believers are kind of caught off guard. They don't know how to answer it. They don't want to say, well, we don't take it literally because then uh, they're thinking of liberals like, you know, John Shelby Spong or John Dominic Crossan or, you know, the guys from <clears throat> from the Jesus Seminar. But then it seems like a catch-22 because if you say you do take it literally, then what do you do with some of the figure of language? Like, uh, you know, um, talking about, uh, you know, carrying up the people from the four corners of the earth. And the skeptics will claim that uh, if you take the Bible literally, then you have to believe in a flat earth. 
And so we need to know how to kind of navigate this. Um, and some of the some of the examples, and I, I know Melissa, you hear this all the time as well from people um, when they say, "Well, you know, we're you Christians are against homosexuality," and you bring these verses up in the Old Testament. But what about uh, what about eating pork? What about eating shellfish? You take the Bible literally, don't you? And you you hear prominent Christian leaders say these type of things at times, don't you? So the, the, we have to know how how to be able to respond to that. We got to know how to uh, to answer those type of challenges. And uh, also, even when you see things, um, language, for example, um, where you have texts that are speaking about God, uh, what we would call anthropomorphically. And um, Melissa, you want to kind of explain what anthropomorphically is? Anthropomorphisms? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> basically. Um... It's, in scripture, we see um, certain passages, um, you know, Devin gave, gave some examples earlier, but there are passages such as um, God's like a mother uh, who covers, her, covers, us, covers us with her feathers, you know, these sort of things. Um, and these uh, passages that seem to attribute um, certain characteristics to God um, that don't fit because he is a... Um, an, uh, he, He's an infinite being, and he's a metaphysical being, his spirit. So we kind of see these um, these passages that attribute certain characteristics to God that are physical in nature um, and that don't seem to go along with his nature and character. Um, but because we are finite and we have limited perspective and we are human, um, these passages are given to us in a way that uh, attribute certain characteristics to God that we can understand in the context of our humanity. So basically it's just uh, where passages and descriptions of God are given to us that um, uh, it, it appears that they are human or that they describe human nature, um, but they're just given to us so that we can understand him a little better, not that we can uh, uh, comprehend uh, an infinite being like God, but just to give us more of a perspective so that we can um, have a, a grasp, a better grasp of who he is. Right, and the, the dangers with it is, is you, you'll see it even in Mormonism, because you have scriptures that will say, well, we're made in the image of God, or the eyes of the Lord go to and fro, or the hand of the Lord is strong. And uh, because of that, they will take, Mormons will take verses like that and uh, come to the conclusion that God has a physical body. I mean, he's, he's like us. So it's important to know how to distinguish that. But then even in, in Christendom, uh, you have um, a group that's been around for, I guess, probably since the, the early 80s, uh, the open theists, who will take verses like um, God repenting um, or God changing his mind, these type of, of verses, and uh, from that conclude that, uh, therefore, God does not know the future exhaustively um, or infallibly. And so it's very important that we, we have uh, our call, what's called hermeneutics. Melissa, what is, what is hermeneutics? <clears throat> hermeneutics is the method by which we uh, interpret the Bible. Right. So we have to have these principles right. 
how the art and science of biblical uh, interpretation. So what I thought we would do is just kind of look at this article for a moment. Got a few minutes here before Dr. Corbin comes on and uh, and uh, take some of these points down. I think most have posted that article. So if you go to our Facebook page, you can see it. Uh, but let's let's discuss this. Um, the first point is uh, the question is what did the original author intend to convey to the original audience? So when we're you know, reading the scriptures, and I, and I would encourage you you folks to do that every day. Uh, when you're sitting down to do your devotions and you you start going through the book of John or whatever book you're going through, the question has to be. Um, there are several questions you can ask, but the one question that should never be asked is, what does this passage mean to me? And I've been in Bible studies before, and I'm sure, Melissa, you've been in Bible studies before, um, mm-hmm. where this is kind of the method of interpreting the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does this passage mean to me? In fact, I was talking to a friend uh, earlier who went to a, a church uh, last night, and as they were you know, discussing the Bible... Um, the the consensus among the people was that uh, the passage could mean one thing for one person and mean one thing for another. And uh, the problem with that is that is that is just relativism. It, it basically it does away with absolute truth. So, for mm-hmm. example, if Scripture says in John um, John fourteen uh, six. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Well, what if somebody else says, well, to me, that doesn't mean that. (laughs) You know, to me, it means Jesus is a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see the problem with that. And so we don't make the Bible, uh, it's not a a relativistic book. It's not, uh, what does it mean for me? It's not a buffet where we just take and leave what we like. Uh, the, the, The question is, uh, who is this book written to? Who is the original audience that the book is written to? And uh, you know, the author seeking to encourage. Uh, you know, are they? Are they? Is the author seeking to encourage the exiled people of Israel? They have one of the questions there. Uh, was the author seeking to convince the Jewish people about the, that Jesus was the Messiah? So it's some of these background questions that are going to help us to understand um, more of the context uh, and and some of the more difficult passages. Mhm. Yeah, and as the article points out, yeah, it is hard work to go in and dig in and and to take the time to study to find out what was going on, the context, historical uh, context, um, the audience, these sort of background um, clues that give us an idea of what was going on um, at the time that the passage was written and, and uh, to the people it was written to. So it does take work to dig and study and find these things out, but it's worth it and it's necessary so that we can have a proper understanding of Scripture so that then we're not misapplying Scripture in our lives, but applying it appropriately in our lives. Very good. Absolutely right. I'll let you do the next point, Melissa. Okay, sure. Um, the next point is what writing style is used for this section of Scripture? Um, and this is important um, because you do have different genres 
of literature in the in the Bible. And the Bible um, is literature. It is written, and it is, um, but it, yet it contains sixty six different uh, letters or books um, within it. So not every book of the Bible is of the same genre of literature. Very important to distinguish as you're reading certain texts. Um, for instance, the, the Psalms are primarily poetry, um, so we, you see a lot of similes, metaphors, um, word pictures, that kind of thing. The epistles are letters penned by the apostles, um, and so these letters are more straightforward. Um, they present more of a logical progression of information, um, and the Gospels, for instance, are narrative. So. In the Gospels, we have more of eyewitness accounts of events that were occurring. Um, Revelation, apocalyptic literature, so obviously there, there's a lot of symbolic language involved there. So you can just see in, in, um, in these different uh, genres that their the writing styles are different, and therefore that is going to be in, in very important terms of interpreting those texts in those particular books. Right. One of the passages often used, uh, for example, Proverbs, uh, you know, train a child up the way he should be raised in the faith, and then when he's old, he will not uh, depart. And uh, you, you hear a lot of times Christians or even skeptics using that, um, but but the, the the whole purpose, of, you know, the Proverbs, it's it's general principles, right? It's not saying you know every single one. It's you know, it's it's it is a general principle put in place that if you teach your child the way he will go, generally they will not uh, fall away. Uh, right. Sometimes we see um, uh, again uh, with with the uh, with the language um, in the Psalms or even the Book of Revelation. Uh, you know, you have to know how to um, to be able to distinguish uh, metaphors and hyperboles. And mm-hmm. these type of thing, uh, because otherwise you can get into uh, to serious error. Yeah, I mean, thinking of the for instance, you have a lot of your um, word of faith preachers who quote consistently from the Book of Proverbs, um, and like you said, the Proverbs presents these general principles that we can apply to our lives that we should apply to our lives. Um, but what they look like in our lives may be different. Um, but they're they're general principles. Um, of wisdom um, and great principles of wisdom that we should apply to our lives, but they will sometimes present these um, these scriptures as a method or a um, some type of mechanical procedure to get what you want from God, um, and that's not the the way that they were meant to be um, interpreted and applied to our lives at all. Right, absolutely. It's crucial to to get those those differences down as well. Uh, let's look at the third point. Where does this section of Scripture fall in the light of salvation history? And that's the amazing thing about the Bible, folks. 66 books, uh, 40 about 40 authors, uh, written over 1,500 years on three different continents. And yet you have this amazing tapestry in the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, and so especially when reading the Old Testament. Um, I'm thinking Leviticus, Deuteronomy, some of these old passages, um, Old Testament passages where 
we're reading about, for example, uh, the Day of Atonement and animal sacrifices, this kind of stuff. A lot of times, if you're not if you're not looking at the bigger picture, uh, it doesn't make sense. It just seems why in the world would you know they have to slaughter animals, or, or even um, you know we're doing we're doing a Bible study Monday nights and um, we're going through the Book of Romans and last uh, last Monday uh, we were looking at um, the fall of man and how uh, after Adam and Eve sinned God had to uh, basically kill a couple of animals to cover Adam and Eve. Uh, to cover their their nakedness, and you see this this theme throughout the Bible that it is uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And so, trying to understand the Old Testament, uh, it's going to be crucial to to understand it in light of uh, the New Testament and how salvation. Uh, you see this redemptive history uh, from Genesis through uh, through Revelation. Mm-hmm. And also the prophecies. I guess I'd point that out as well. You have numerous, numerous, numerous prophecies uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, I think there's over like a hundred just of, of the birth of Christ. And, and so all these types and shadows and prophecies are pointing for uh, the Messiah who is coming. And so when we you get into difficult passages, maybe... Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, like I say, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, some of those can be some of those can be rough and hard to understand. Um, but but again, just try and put it together in the big picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kind of like putting together, you know, a, a puzzle. You see all the pieces uh, scattered out, uh, or you just see a, you know a few of them. You may not understand how they fit. Uh, but when you see it, when it's all put together, you see it, it just fits perfectly and exactly the way God has intended it. Mm-hmm. you have anything to, to add to that? No, absolutely. I mean, we know, you know, everything in the Bible is pointing to Jesus Christ. And so it is important to look at um, that in light of, of the passages that we're reading, um, uh, you know, salvation history of mankind. Right. I'll let you go ahead and do the next point, then, Melissa. Okay. Um, the next point is, um, what is the intended outcome for this section of scripture? And basically, what what um, the, the question poses is, how does God want us to re- to respond um, to this command, promise, warning, or rebuke? Um, for instance, should I worship? Should I repent? Should I take courage? Should I marvel? Um, God's word is not meant to be read and dissected um, like a chemistry textbook. It's living and it's active. Um, so God speaks to us when we, when we read his word. He wants us to respond to his word, to obey his word, to live his word. Um, and we are to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Um, very important. Absolutely. That's the difference between a true convert and a false convert. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's look at this last point here uh, before our guest comes on. Uh, how does this passage line up with the rest of the Bible? And this, man, this is so important. Uh, this is where so many groups get it wrong. Um, is they will take uh, these obscure passages, 
<clears throat> you know, where uh, uh, you have a few passages that may not be uh, relatively clear, and they want to build a whole doctrine uh, off of those type of passages. And the general rule of thumb is you always, always, always interpret uh, difficult passages uh, in light of clearer ones. I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. Can you can you think of any, Melissa, where, where at times people have taken some obscure passages and try and make a whole... Uh, doctrine off of them. Yeah, it's you know like we're saying in, in the book of Proverbs, very a lot of passages of dealing with money, wealth, these sort of things, and right. a lot of your prosperity preachers will use those. Um, and instead of getting a, a clear picture of what the scripture uh, teaches us about money and wealth and possessions and prosperity, you know, for instance, that we're to be humble, that God provides our needs, He doesn't promise us um, all of our wants. Um, that we're to be content with little or with much. Um, so sometimes um, we just see these passages taken out of context and used um, to promote a, a very materialistic uh, mindset. Right, and, and uh, this would also be used to correct the groups like the open theists that say um, God doesn't know the future. You know, you, I think you can demonstrate, you know, you don't take a handful of anthropomorphic verses uh, when you have, you know, 50 that clearly teach God knows, you know, everything exhaustively. Uh, you don't you don't uh, overturn the 50 verses for the three or four. You have to deal with the difficult passages, and and the best way to always do that is going to be uh, interpreting them in light of the of the clear verses. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, hopefully this article is, has helped, and uh, we've got several points there laid out. Uh, it's on our Facebook page. Uh, feel free to go to it, and uh, you know, just remember those pointers as you're reading the Bible, and also as you're talking with people that um, we are are in cults or uh, whatever whatever the case may be, whether it's Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, because a lot of the verses that they will use, um, the the problem is going to be just bad hermeneutics. And so by pressing them on those points, uh, you'll probably get to the bottom of uh, of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Well, we um, are going to transition now and bring our guests on the line as we discuss um, the topic of Islam tonight. And we've really been looking forward to this show. And we have with us Dr. Wynne Cordelin. And Dr. Cordelin is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and Religion at Taylor University in Indiana. And um, Dr. Cordelin, or Wynne as he's officially known, um, he has uh, written several books. And uh, just a few of them, uh, no, about it, no Doubt About It, The Case for Christianity, um, The Pocket World to World Religion, um, and Neighboring Faiths, which we have been digging into, the, the second edition of that. So that's been a, an awesome book. Um, also, coming in August, he has a book coming out, uh, which is titled, In the Beginning, God, uh, Reviving the Case for Original Monotheism. And Dr. Cordwin has done a lot of work in terms of uh, Eastern religion and polytheistic religions. and um, So we are really excited to have him on the air with us tonight to discuss the topic of Islam, 
um, which is growing, obviously, uh, worldwide. And um, Dr. Cordons is a good friend of ours, and we're really excited to have you on the air with us. Uh, you there, Dr. Cordowin? Yes, I am. Hi, Melissa, and hi, Devin. How are you? We are well. We are so excited to have you. We've really been looking forward to it. And how is the little one? Yeah. So she, she's doing good. She's she's with uh, with a friend now, so we could do the show. But uh, yeah, Eliana's doing. She's doing great. She said she'll listen to the podcast later. <laughs> <laughs> great. Getting her started early. <laughs> Well, it's good to be with you and to chat with you, even though it's simply over the electric lines. Mm-hmm. Very good to hear your voice, Dr. Cordowin. So what have you been up to these days in terms of your work and your ministry? And I know you've been traveling and all sorts of good things. Well, uh, in terms of work, I just finished an article for the Lexham Bible Dictionary on the Pharaoh Akhenaten who supposedly instituted monotheism in Egypt. Hmm. <laughs> so that's wow. occupied me the last month or so very, very much. Uh, been doing some family-type travel. Hmm. And um, just got back home today from a few days, and I'm ready to tackle whatever the next project is or go back to some of my long-range things that I'm doing on the web that we'll be able to reveal fairly soon now. But right now, it's a secret. I cannot tell you that there will be a huge site going up that will be about Buddhism. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Well, I I, I said I I can't tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Well, We'll, we'll wait with bated breath. Um, can you tell us about your blog, Dr. Cordwin? Where can we find your some of your writings on your blog? My blog is kind of my life in abstract. Uh, it's at wincordwin, W-I-N-C-O-R-D-U-A-N, dot bravejournal, dot com. And um, I'll post that in our uh, chat room and on our Facebook page as well, Dr. Cordelin. Great. Yeah, the first uh, the first book I ever was introduced to you, Dr. Cordelin, was um, we were in uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary and uh, taking a class under Dr. Geisler under the uh, problem of evil. Uh-huh. And we got to do his uh, philosophy of religion book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know you you co-authored that with them, and uh, yeah. man, that is one of the, the standard books I go to today still. Thank you. Yeah, I got to do the second edition, and you cannot believe what an honor that was for me when Norm sent me a little piece of paper. This was prior to email, on which he scribbled in his illegible handwriting. Would you like to revise philosophy of religion and be listed as co-author? Wow. <laughs> I could hardly believe it, but I was excited, and I hope that my contribution made a difference to the book, but uh, it certainly still is Dr. Geisler's book. 
Well, I'll tell you that I, I would highly recommend that book, folks. I mean, you're talking to the two of the sharpest minds in Christianity today. Uh, Dr. Geisler is just uh, absolutely one of our heroes of the faith, and teamed up with Wynn Cordwin. It is it is a tremendous tremendous book. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. You know, one of the problems today is, and you were mentioning open theism earlier and the discussion surrounding those kinds of things, is that people do metaphysics, or at least they make pronouncements in metaphysics, without actually engaging in a metaphysical system, without right. actually establishing. So what do we mean by being? Mm-hmm. And so forth. And if there's any one thing that distinguishes uh, the philosophy of religion that I was allowed to help revise a little bit from other books is, is that we really get into the, the metaphysics and don't just throw around terms like necessary being and causality without defining in very rigorous terms what those things mean. Right. And really, that's where that that's where because, like I said, you know, you, you're going to have some verses that say, um, you know, God doesn't know the future, and that's you know, the open theists are trying to use the Bible too. So it's it's like you mm-hmm. say, uh, some of that's going to have to be answered uh, with some of the metaphysical arguments, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you, I mean, otherwise, you can make words mean anything. Like right. All right. Well, that's great. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the topic we wanted to get into tonight, uh, and that was um, we're going to look at Islam and and also uh, radical Islam. I know you had some stuff you'd wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess the first question would be: Obviously, you're a Christian. Um, why are you interested in studying Islam and talking about it? I actually get this question from a lot of people myself of, of you know, who cares what the Mormons believe or the J-dubs or the, you know, the Muslims. So what do you say to that? Well, um, let me do a really, really cruel example here, okay? Okay. Um, we, we referred a little bit... To, ago to your new baby. Now, I don't think that he's all that special. Arg, you're supposed to scream now. That's a terrible terrible thing to say. You know, for one thing, it shows that I really don't know her. And, of course, I got the sex messed up. It's okay. And I'm passing judgment on something or somebody who is really dear to you without really taking care that I get things right. Right. And so as Christians, we're supposed to love our neighbor. We're supposed to love other people who believe things different from us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's nothing as dear to people as their grandchildren or their children, and their religion. And I I don't think you can say that you really love a person if you really don't care what they believe. Right. So I think, you know, we owe it to people with whom we come in contact 
and to, uh, to whom we're trying to point to Christ, that we get to know a little bit about their religion and what they believe so that we can understand them and relate to them, because this is precious to them. Even if we think it's totally false, it's still very precious to them. Also, yeah. a little bit more pragmatically, Islam, just like Christianity, just like any other group, has many subgroups. We have different denominations and confessions. I mean, if a Muslim studies Christianity, what is it going to study? Uh, Catholicism? Plymouth Brethren? Quakers? I mean, there are so many differences, and it's really important for us not to tar everyone with the same brush, but to realize that there are militant groups and there are totally pacifistic Muslim groups as well. And to, to recognize, you know, not necessarily becoming experts, but to recognize that not all Muslims believe or practice the same things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that I think that's absolutely right, and and just as you say, just as, as being courteous and respectful, and they're not going to take us seriously if we can't even take the time to to know what it is that they believe. We we need to be rational and thinking as well, and not just stick our head in the sand and say, "Well, I'm right." Mm-hmm. Right. So, Melissa, did you did you have anything to add to that? I didn't mean to cut you off there. Oh no, no. I was just, yeah, I was definitely um, uh, listening and, and taking that in because obviously, as we are um, dialoguing with people and as we're witnessing to people, we want to show a genuine concern for who they are, the things that are important to them, and that example that you gave earlier, Dr. Cordelin, about our daughter was just that was really neat. Um, to, to <laughs> it's very mean, but <laughs> yeah, it was a little, yeah, a little, little cruel, but it was, it was a good example to show. Um, that we should uh, genuinely care about those who we're ministering to, and again, those things that are very important to them and dear to them, um, and, and and people know and understand that that we genuinely are vested in them, um, and so yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm glad that you took the time to study this topic and that you've written about it so that others like like myself can study it as well and learn more so that we can dialogue with our Muslim friends and neighbors. Well, thank you. Uh, Dr. Cordo, when you talked about the different groups kind of uh, within Christianity as far as Plymouth Brethren and uh, and whatnot, uh, there's also different groups uh, in Islam, from what I understand. Right. And uh, before I go on, folks, Dr. Cordo sent me uh, and Melissa his book, Neighboring Faith. Mm-hmm. Tremendous book this is. I mean, uh, in fact, Melissa... If you if you would uh, maybe you could go ahead and throw a link uh, from Amazon or unless you have a different link you'd like us to to post Dr. Cordwin uh, on our Facebook page to let people aware of that book so where they can buy a copy of that at. I think Amazon is good. Okay. Okay. All right. Even InterVarsity Press links their their page okay. to Amazon. Okay. Great. So that's yeah. It's, it is a tremendous tremendous book. It's it's very well done. Uh, good quality IV, IVP is a, is a very good quality books, and uh, I mean this this thing is several hundred pages, very in depth. So I've been really enjoying going through that. But so 
the, the different groups of Christianity, but you also have different groups of, of Islam. Um, how does how does the difference show up? Uh, because we always hear about radical Islam, and mm-hmm. uh, you know you just hear you can't go a day uh, listening to the news without hearing different terrorist groups um, in Islam have 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 attacked Israel or or uh, something else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So how does that how does the differences show up? Well, it makes a difference in terms of understanding the motivation. Uh, and, uh, of course, the most important thing is that uh, we do not put all Muslims into the same camp as being radicals or prone to violence. And to understand the reasons behind why some uh, Muslims do what they do, and I'm, I'm not saying to rationalize that. Uh, right. But still, there's a difference between a Muslim who carries out terrorism for a specific purpose and a Muslim who carries out terrorism simply because he loves to destroy everyone who's not a Muslim. So to that extent, it makes a difference. Also, it helps us interpret the news and understand. I mean, if you've been reading my blog, Months ago now, I pursued fairly thoroughly for a little while what I called back then and what the news now calls Benghazi Gate, the bombing of the uh, embassy in Libya. And, uh, you know, that was an act of terrorism. And... uh, Okay, I'm going to get very political here. The Obama administration put forward that, oh, these were Muslims who were reacting to a film that had been made that uh, was uh, desecrating Muhammad. Well, that was just plain untrue. And, in fact, uh, the uh, prime minister of Libya, Mr. Ali Zaidan uh, was so upset over that lie that he didn't allow anyone to investigate the site of the bombing for 16 days, and by then all the evidence was gone. And uh, so, you know, we need to understand that in some cases, Muslims react to films such as the one that was... uh, brought up, but then there are other cases where such uh, explanations are simply totally implausible, and uh, as we now know that there was probably Al-Qaeda or a similar group, someone affiliated with them behind that, and so it it helps us to sort through what we're being told. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Let's... uh... I guess I guess what we need to do is kind of take a closer look. Uh, give, give us give us a brief summary uh, of Islam, because um, I guess really until I think actually it was um, I, I was going through Dr. Geisler's book Answering Islam, and uh, in the in the foreword of the revised edition, he said that um, you know they had written that book. Him and uh, Abdul Salib had written that book 
uh, before 9-11 happened, and it really, it was a good book, and people liked it, but it wasn't really uh, one of their better selling books. Mm-hmm. But he said after 9-11 happened, the book just exploded. I mean, uh, it just went off the shelves like hotcakes. So I guess really up till not not too long ago, I guess maybe us in, in America um, have not been real familiar with Islam. And I've even heard, uh, you know, there's a movement um, where Christians, uh, some Christians uh, have tried to kind of mix Islam and Christianity, and you have Chrislam. Explain just a little bit about the history and uh, the teachings of, of Islam. Okay, let me uh, just go through a bit of material here so we don't get too hung up on this. Uh, In short, if I can give a brief summary, Islam is a monotheistic religion. It believes in one God. The name, the word Allah really is not a name, but simply the word for God. It was taught by Muhammad who lived from 570 A.D. to 632 A.D. He lived in Mecca, in what is now Saudi Arabia, moved to Medina, and eventually died there. He had, from age 40 on or so, what was considered to be revelations from God, And God is the one speaking in all of them. And that's very important to remember. When you read the Quran, you're not reading what Muhammad supposedly revealed, but what God directly revealed to him that he recited. And the collection of those recitations is the Quran. Okay, Quran means recitations. And... uh, it's the, the collection of what Muhammad taught in his last 22 years. And it was already uh, collected in book form pretty much by the end of his life. Mm. Now, uh, very quickly, there are five or six fundamental beliefs that Islam holds. And it's simply a matter of how you divide them up. There's the belief in one God, a belief in angels and spirits, a belief in prophets and messengers and their books, if you want to keep it to five, So, uh, and belief in the last judgment, and number five, belief in the power of God so that nothing happens on earth that is not willed by him. So let me do that again. One, God. Two, angels. Three, prophets and books. Four, judgment. Five, providence. And then there are five pillars, which are the five mandatory worship practices of Islam. And those are, number one, to recite the uh, basic confession, 
I believe that there is no God but God or no Allah but Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Number two, to pray regularly five times a day. Number three, to observe uh, the fast during the months of Ramadan. Number four, to uh, pay alms to give to the poor. And number five, to make the pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is uh, Islam in a nutshell. And regardless of what group you belong to, all Muslims hold to those. Okay. Uh, Dr. Corbin, just, just quickly, what is, um, what, are, what is the Muslims' uh, view of Jesus? Well, they say they have a very high view of Jesus, and indeed they do. Uh, Jesus is very special. Uh, If you can establish a hierarchy among the prophets, uh, obviously Muhammad, who is the last of the prophets, the seal of the prophets, is at the very top. Second in line could be Abraham, but it could also be Jesus. There is a widespread belief about Muslims, uh, among Muslims, that Jesus was a prophet. I mean, that's not questioned at all, that he was a prophet, mm-hmm. that he was born of a virgin, that he ascended to heaven, and then many Muslims believe that in the last days, when the final reformer, the Mahdi, comes, Jesus will also return to earth, and he will carry out or assist in or in some way be uh, functional in the last judgment. Mm -hmm. So they have a very high view of Jesus, but they do not believe that... uh, Jesus is the Son of God. They do not believe in the Trinity. They do not believe that Jesus died on the cross or that he died as atonement for us. Those ideas are simply unacceptable for them. And uh, so consequently, uh, the, the, the whole picture of God in Islam and God in the Bible are not reconcilable mm-hmm. because uh, in the Quran, okay, remember what I said a moment ago, I emphasized that it is God speaking in the Quran, supposedly. And right. so God in the Quran is saying, Jesus is not God. Jesus is, has, did not die on the cross, but that was a deception. And so whatever the picture of Allah is, it is not the same picture as we have in Christianity where God is triune and Jesus is 
the second person of the Trinity, and he is the one who became incarnate and died on the cross for our sins. So you cannot reconcile those. Right. And so to come back to your beginning comment then, uh, you cannot uh, can, logically or spiritually, uh, honestly, undertake a fusion of Islam and Christianity. Mm. I mean, there's, uh, there's oh, any number of people who say that, uh, to switch religions for a moment, that uh, Christians or Jewish Christians are fulfilled Jews because the Old Testament points to Christ as the Messiah. Okay, I can run with that because we agreed with that. The Old Testament does point to Christ, and the New Testament fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. But there is no way that you can say that the Quran is fulfilled in the New Testament, because the Quran very specifically uh, denies beliefs that are central to Christianity, like mm -hmm. the deity of Christ and his death on the cross on our behalf. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Cordula, can I can I ask you um, a quick question? I'm looking at your page, uh, Neighboring Faith, uh, page 114, and I thought this was a very interesting distinction you made. Uh, the second paragraph down uh, says Allah and Yahweh. It says thus we can ex um, ex this particular part is dealing with the essentials of Islam. I uh, would say, thus we can expect a lot of similarities to other monotheistic religions as, uh, as well as some differences. Which brings us to the uh, perennial this question, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Because of the imprecise nature of the question, the answer depends on the questioner's perspective, historical origin or theological description. In terms of historical origin, the answer is clearly yes. In terms of theological description, there are many general points of similarity, uh, but when it comes down to specific details, the answer has to be no. Um, I, I like I like how you you put that. Would you like to, to to maybe clarify that or break it down more for those who who get lost in some of the words there? Sure. Um, there's one God, okay, and He created the world, and He left his revelation in the world, first of all, in nature. Mm -hmm. And he revealed himself directly, particularly to the Jews, but uh, there was a, there's a strong memory of God in uh, some other religions as well. And so there, there's only one God, there can only be one God who started it all. Now, as people continued to believe in God, they also wound up adding a lot of things that God had not revealed. Consequently, he chose the Hebrews in order to more specifically reveal himself, beginning with Abraham. And so in the scripture, we have a lot of specific information about this God. Now, when we come to Arabia in the 6th and 7th centuries A.D., the idea of 
a God who created the world was still floating around. And uh, there were Jews and there were Christians in Arabia. And uh, not all of them were particularly orthodox, but uh, they had more specific information based on divine revelation. Well, when Muhammad ran across these teachings and probably very specifically uh, also the the Arabians who still remembered God, they, they were called the Hanifs, who that means the righteous ones, he kind of amalgamated uh, a lot of Arabian thinking that had been influenced by various factors with a Christian and Jewish picture of God. And so he got it to a great extent from the right source. But from a biblical point of view, uh, he got it in the wrong proportions, so to speak. And uh, he, he did not come up with a correct picture because uh, he added too much from his own background and his own information and uh, wherever else uh, his particular descriptions of God would come from. So, yeah, there's only one God, and uh, we can draw a straight line back to him from many different religions, not just Islam, but Chinese religion and Hinduism and Zoroastrianism and so forth. But apart from his revelation, the picture of God has become distorted. And so as it is now, taking a slice through time right at this point, the the God of those other religions is no longer the God of the Bible. Hmm. Good stuff, Dr. Cordelin. Um So we see this difference, obviously, between Christianity and Islam and that the two cannot be reconciled. Um, in terms of Islam in general, um, what are there different groups within Islam? And um, what are these groups, and how are they similar or different um, to one another? Um, let me try to summarize, but if this becomes too obscure, please stop me. Uh, okay. I'll try to do it in broad strokes, but you know, realize that my students had the privilege of hearing this over four hours of lectures. Right. <laughs> okay. We have two mm-hmm. main divisions, the Sunnites and the Shiites. And that began right after Muhammad's death. Okay. Because Islam was a political entity as well as a religion. So who would become the successor to Muhammad? Okay, and the Sunnites said uh, it would be Abu Bakr, and uh, the Shiites said it should be Ali, and uh, so those two groups split. And uh, the difference is basically that the Sunnites do not have a central authority, but they have different schools of law that are taught in major Islamic uh, universities, whereas for the different groups of Shiites, they 
follow a specific person, the imam, whose uh, interpretation of the Quran is final. A lot of times the uh, analogy is made in terms of the Sunnis being like Protestants and uh, Shiites being like Catholics, and I usually dislike analogies, but that one really fits pretty well. So those are the two biggest branches. Now, underneath them, as I said already, among the Sunnis, we have the different schools of law. Among the Shiites, we have the different groups uh, of who was the final uh, authorized imam after which they carried on with a substitute imam. So we have the Twelvers, Seveners, Fivers, and so forth, and they split into more and more groups. The Shiites share their belief that eventually their last imam or their last official supernatural leader will return as the Mahdi, mm. the, the final reformer. The Sunnites also believe in the Mahdi, but he's a much more shadowy figure there. Their beliefs are divided to a great extent, according to how they interpret the law, and without getting into too many details, it has to do with the question of how much weight to give to the Quran and the Hadith, the uh, tradition with respect to each other, and which which traditions are more authoritative than others. Mm-hmm. And so on that basis, then, uh, you had different groups that uh, that emerged, and some of them we would call much stricter than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do not like the word fundamentalist applied to either Muslims or Jews, for that matter, because uh, it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. It, it means something for Christians, but it, because there are the fundamentals that were written in the early 20th century. But there is no such thing in Islam or Judaism. And uh, so we have these strict groups and uh, some not so strict. The Sufis, one would count among those who who took the Quran pretty allegorically. They were the mystics, still are, the whirling dervishes and so forth. And then in a lot of areas of the world, there is a lot of syncretism, a lot of mixing up between Islam and local religions. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, they would take a relatively liberal view, as it were, of Muslim practice. Um, if you go to Southeast Asia or India, you find a lot of mixtures. Uh, there's a shrine in Hyderabad, I, I could not believe my my eyes. Uh, and I took a picture, a shrine in a, a tower that had been built by a Muslim ruler in which both Hindus and Muslims were praying together. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. You would not recognize it as a Muslim 
shrine at all. It doesn't look anything like a mosque. Hmm. Nor necessarily like a Hindu temple either. And uh, there, there are numerous places like that in India and in Southeast Asia uh, that are just uh, astounding. And so that's why you then also have very strict reform movements. Okay, before going on, let me stop for a second and give you a chance to to clarify to ask me to clarify anything that I said. I think that was pretty pretty straightforward and understandable. Okay. That was good. good, yeah. Then I'm going to throw in the monkey wrench now. <laughs> okay. Now I I said you had the Shiites and the Sunnis. And uh the big contest was between them who would supply the uh, the successor to Muhammad. Well, actually, I'm putting things backwards. Out of that struggle, the two parties emerged. Now, I said that one of the contenders was a fellow named Ali, Ali bin Talib, uh, who was Muhammad's uh, son-in-law. He had married his daughter, mm-hmm. and he thought that he should be the legitimate successor to Muhammad, the mm-hmm. imam, and that he had a supernatural power, whereas others, as I said, uh, voted for other people as the caliph or successor. And it really was a kind of a consensus. You know, they didn't take a ballot, but it was a matter of reaching a consensus. Well, um, so by the time that we get to the fourth caliph, Ali finally got the nomination, and he was going to be the one to lead the Muslim people. But by that point, he had an opponent, and uh, I try not to clutter things too much with names, And so it came to downright warfare. I mean, the two armies were assembled and ready to fight against each other. And then Ali said, no, I cannot do this. And he pulled back. He did not want to fight other Muslims. Well, Ali had a certain group of supporters who thought that given the options, he was the better choice, the lesser of two evils, as it were. Mm-hmm. Though, actually, these people did not believe that either Ali or his opponent, Muawiyah, were really suited because they thought the true caliph should be the one who is the most devout Muslim. And as far as they were concerned, here we are, barely 20 or so years after the death of Muhammad, and Islam is already being corrupted beyond recognition. Hmm. And so they killed Ali. And uh, they assassinated him. They stabbed him. Now, this group is called the Karajites, which means the splinter group. And they set a kind of a pattern. And under different names... From that time on, there have always been 
carriageites in an extended sense. They call them neo-carriageites. Radicals who believe that not just uh, the, the rest of the world is corrupt, not just some Muslims are corrupt, but pretty much all of Islam is corrupt. Okay. And all of Islam needs to be reformed. Okay. So let me mention a couple of those to add to your list of groups. Okay. One is the group that followed a man named Ibn Abd al-Wahhab, who lived in Arabia, what is now Saudi Arabia, in the 18th century. And uh, he thought that Islam, as he saw it, had fallen into idolatry. And he was pretty much opposed to anything that was not straight from the Quran, that there, you know, there should be no music, Sufism and that mysticism had to go. Uh, he and his followers took the grave of uh, Muhammad, where people came and prayed, destroyed it, built some camel stalls over it. Uh, no music, no drinking, no gambling. You know, if it's if it's anything that is not specifically in the Quran. Uh, it should be put to an end, and people who practice it should be executed. Mm-hmm. Now, even Abdul Wahab happened to be in the good graces of the Saudi family, and uh, they adopted his form of Islam. Okay. And then in the early 20th century, when Abdul Aziz ibn al Saud became king of Saudi Arabia, he implemented Wahhabite Islam in his country. Mm. And so the Islam in Saudi Arabia is one of the strictest forms anywhere. Mm. And the same form of Islam was accepted in the United Arab Emirates Mm -hmm. and in Afghanistan under the Taliban. Mm -hmm. So the Taliban is a Wahhabite form of Islam, which is very, very strict. They don't even like the term Wahhabite because that means that they follow the teaching of a person, even though they do. So I don't have any compunction of using that term. I like to call people what they want to be called, unless it's ridiculous. And in this case, it would be absurd not to call them Wahhabite. But that's where that form of Islam came from. And even after uh, 9-11, there were three countries that did not, uh, that refused to decline recognition of the Taliban, and that was Saudi Arabia, or so-and-so maybe ally, and the United Arab Emirates, and Pakistan, 
where the Taliban had uh, established their schools. Hmm. So that's uh, one of the uh, radical groups of Islam, and uh, they definitely qualify as neo-Karajite, but their goal is essentially to reform Islam. And that makes a big difference because the goal is not to take over the world. Hmm. Okay, uh, let me pause again because I, yeah. I don't want to get into a lengthy lecturing mode here. No, that's very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Then, interesting. Um, go ahead, Dr. Cordon. Uh, Are you going to continue? Yeah, I can go on. Sure, now, go there, right. is, there is another group that developed in the 20th century. It's a school of thought that's represented by a number of people, but uh, the most important among them is, or was, a man named Saeed Kutp. Okay, <laughs> Saeed, you can spell however you want to, uh, S-A-Y-Y-A-D, for example, uh, there's a zillion ways of translating it. Qutb is spelled Q-U-T-B. Hmm. And it's a lot easier to say that his followers are the Qutbites than to leave off with a B when you say his name. Okay, so uh, Saeed Qut comes from Egypt, or he came from Egypt, mm-hmm. and uh, he was uh, an educator. He showed a great appreciation for culture and literature and uh, was working for the Egyptian government in their Ministry of Education and they sent him on a trip to uh, the United States where he spent uh, about a year and a half, I think, if I remember correctly, Uh, visiting various educational institutions, and he came back. Now, this would have been uh, shortly after World War II. It would have been in the 1950s or so. He came back and was totally out of joint with everyone. Okay? He thought that the United States was, you know, totally corrupt and uh, sinful and uh, beyond help. But also, he had given up on the current state of Islam. Hmm. And I'm not sure how that connects up with his visit to the United States. But he declared that there simply is no source of truth anymore in the world except for the Quran and Sharia that all governments, all states, all cultures are corrupted. That uh, right now Islam is just a front. It's right back where it was before Muhammad ever came along in the, the time of darkness as they call it the Jahiliya, uh, that uh, what is considered to be Islam right now 
is not. And uh, anybody, whether they live in an Islamic country or non-Islamic, is living in slavery. Mm. And so the world must be won back for Islam, the entire world. Mm. And he wrote out his strategy about that, for that, in a book called Milestones. And I keep telling people on my blog to please read Milestones, and I don't know how, how many people actually do, but it's chilling. Okay. His point is, the Quran says, let there be no compulsion in religion, because truth is going to show up. So there should be no force. No one should be converted by force. Now, the Quran says some other things that aren't easy to reconcile with that, but, you know, that statement is in the Quran. Mm. Sayyid Qutb said, but how can you actually make a free choice in favor of truth if you're enslaved to a government? Mm. So the first thing that needs to be done is that every government in the world needs to be brought down. And mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Muslim governments or you know, Western governments. I hate to call them Christian governments. Right. <laughs> but first of all, all the governments in the world need to be brought down then, without benefit of a ruler, just by itself, Sharia can be used in courts to, uh, to establish what is right and wrong. And only then are people really free to decide. So until then, Islam, true Islam, as he thought, must be spread by force. Now, you run that by your average Muslim, so to speak, and uh, they, you know, they will protest that Islam was not spread by the sword, and uh, there's a lot more that we could talk about in that context, but his point is, uh, yes, it was, and we're not going to have true Islam again until we have proceeded with force with violence and made the world ready for Islam. Now, oh. this Qutbite philosophy is what is behind Al-Qaeda. Mm. This is what uh, Osama bin Laden studied and uh, others associated with him, and that's what's behind Al-Qaeda. It's not the, uh, the neo-Kerajite beliefs of the Wahhabites, even though a lot of Wahhabites have joined uh, Al-Qaeda, but the real ideology behind it is that of Said Qutb. So uh, that, you know, once you realize that, that explains a lot of questions, a, a lot of issues like, there were Muslims in the Twin Towers. Why did, uh, did they kill Muslims? Mm -hmm. Well, they weren't really Muslims. 
because there are no true Muslims right now except just a few uh, who, uh, I guess, were you saw them in the Egyptian Brotherhood or something like that. But basically, they're all living in the Jahili state in darkness, and it it really doesn't matter whether Muslims get killed along with uh, Christians and uh, secular people and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the uh, the other radical group that I wanted to mention. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of associations have been made with the Wahhabites, and to some extent, it's correct, but. Uh, to a large extent, it's it's not. Osama bin Laden was uh, the worst critic or the strongest critic of uh, the Saudi government. Mm-hmm. He uh, he railed against the the prince of Saudi Arabia, and uh, he, he said he was no better than an infidel or worse than an infidel, uh, and. Uh, called for his execution along with that of, quote, all Americans, close quotes. And you can find all that documented in Neighboring Faiths, where in the second edition I have an entire chapter devoted to 9-11 and radical Islam. Okay. Uh, these, these folks have declared war on anyone other than themselves, Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1994 already, okay, we're talking about a long time before 9-11. In 1994, Osama bin Laden already issued a fatwa, a, an official decree, that all Americans should be killed. Mm-hmm. Now, you cannot reconcile that with uh, Sharia or Islam. Right. But uh, that's what Al-Qaeda and those extreme radical groups hold to. So, are we still there? Yes. Yes, we are, Dr. Portland. Um, Okay, awesome. Good stuff. Um, let me ask you, in terms of uh, the violent sects of Islam, uh, we do hear a lot about uh, the fact, or how some will say that they don't represent true Islam. Um, is that the case? Are these just um, uh, offshoot groups? Do they not really hold to the core of, of Islam, the core beliefs of Islam? Well, okay. Let me say this. The, the Qutbites definitely overshoot what the Quran teaches. The uh, the neo carriageites the uh, you know, they're still radical, but uh, they're pretty close to what the Quran teaches. Let me try to give you some verses if I can locate them quickly enough. Uh, I already mentioned. Okay, I'll give you the the reference where I have it. In Surah 2, verse 256, you have the verse that says, Let there be no compulsion in religion, 
truth stands out clear from error. Whoever rejects evil and believes in God has grasped the most trustworthy handhold that never breaks, and God hears and knows all things. Okay, so that seems to be pretty straightforward. You know, no conversion by force. But it doesn't quite work that way. There's, there's no direct, aggressive propagation of Islam by force. Uh, but it goes through the back door. Because wherever right. wherever Islam is oppressed then it is legitimate to declare a holy war on whoever is oppressing him. So, okay, here's another word, verse. This is from Surah 8, verse 38, if you're taking notes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, lots of good say notes to, taken here. Yeah. Say to the unbelievers, if now they desist from unbelief, their past would be forgiven them. But if they persist, the punishment of those before them is already a matter of warning for them. And it goes on to verse 39. And fight them on until there is no more tumult or oppression and there prevail justice and faith in God. Altogether and everywhere, but if they cease, verily God does see all that they do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, please note that there is the provision. Okay, if you convert, then everything is fine. But if you persist in oppressing Islam, causing tumult, as this translation says, then in order to defend the practice of Islam by Muslims, uh, there is an obligation to fight against them. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, what do we mean by oppressing Islam? Right. That's what I was going to, that's what I was going to ask. Is it it like an aggressive act of pushing Islam down or is it just, you know, maintaining a belief other than Islam, right? Uh, It's in between. It is, for example, and this is the big example, it is not permitting Muslims to maintain their regular prayer times Mm. or possibly even not establishing regular prayer times for Muslims. Uh That's the biggest issue. And uh, if you notice that when there have been some conflicts in this country about, you know, are we tolerant of Muslims or not, the issue almost always has involved the question of prayer. For example, you may remember a number of years ago when there was a little bit of to-do at the Minneapolis airport because some imams coming back from uh, a conference were, well, according to some people, were 
carrying on too loudly and making nuisance of themselves. Others said that's totally uh, made up and fabricated. Regardless, my point is, what they came out saying to the rest of the world was our opportunity to say our prayers in the airport was being interfered with. Mm. And and that's a that's a line that carries a lot of weight. Oh, I just read where uh, certain Islams are uh, trying to take legal measures uh, against Catholic University in Washington D.C. Now, Catholic University is not half as Catholic as I'm sure the Pope would like it to be, but. One thing that they do maintain is to have a crucifix in every room. And so the Muslims who are studying there at Catholic University are saying, we would like a room to say our prayers in without a crucifix. Hmm. And again, the message is uh, the Americans are interfering with our opportunity to say regular, sincere prayers. Right. And so that would be considered in you know, at least a legitimate sense, oppression of Islam. Hmm. And uh, no, I don't think that they're going to go to war over that. But my point is they could if there were enough of that kind of thing on, in, on theoretical grounds that, you know, not looking at Al-Qaeda and the really uh, radical groups, but even moderate Islamic groups could say, yes, we see here that the uh, opportunity for Muslims to practice their faith is being interfered with. This mm. This is an act of oppression. And uh, so it, that, that can receive quite a, uh, a liberal interpretation. And so that's how, how Islam basically moved forward, uh, according to the more moderate explanations. Rather than just fighting, they sent messengers into various cities who want a few converts, and uh, of course the uh, that meant that their political allegiance now belonged to the Islamic uh, empire as it was building, and uh, so the ruler, or the prince, or whoever was in charge would object to that. You know, he liked his subjects to remain loyal to him. So at that point, then uh, the Muslims said, well, Islam is being oppressed here, and the army that had been waiting impatiently at the city gates would get the nod and take over the city and then move on. Now, uh, how that's ultimately different from advancing Islam by force uh, I'm not sure I can explain, at least not to my satisfaction, uh, 
Mm-hmm. But uh, theoretically, then, they're saying, no, this was just a matter of defending the newly converted minorities in the in these towns where some people converted to Islam. Okay. Now, um, the, the question is, of course, you know, why were they going into new territory to begin with? And uh, I, I have one book, which I quote in, in Neighboring Faith, uh, uh, the gentleman says, well, they were bringing a message of peace, but in order to ensure their own safety, they had to uh, accompany themselves with a group that looked like an army, but really wasn't. I, I think that's stretching things a little bit. Uh, it's like, it struck me as saying, like, Mother Teresa is going to India to teach peace but she packs uh, Colt 45 just to make sure that she's <laughs> going to be heard and not oppressed. All right. Now, what does it mean then for uh, a town to be taken over by Islam? Okay, another verse from the Quran. Okay, next surah, surah 9, verse 29. And you can look at these in context, and uh, you know, I'm not just yanking yeah. them out. And remember, there's always the proviso that if you submit, then you will be accepted. Okay, so it's not a declaration of all-out war the way that the Kutbites make it. Okay, but now, verse 29 of Surah 29. Fight those who believe not in God, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden, which has been forbidden by God and his apostle, nor acknowledge the religion of truth. Now, here comes the important thing. Even if they are of the people of the book. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. There's a lot made out of the idea that Islam accepts Jews as Christians. Well, yeah, to a certain extent, but not as Jews and Christians per se. There is no equality between Jews and Christians and Muslims. Okay, the verse goes on. Okay, even if they are people of the book until they pay the jizya. Now I'm going to stop again before I go on. The jizya is a tax tax on unbelievers Hmm. for the privilege of living in a Muslim governed area. So if your state or city is governed by Islam, you are enjoying all of the benefits of living under Islam, (laughs) but it it doesn't come free. Obviously You, you have to pay for the privilege. Hmm. And so there's a a tax that is placed on non-Muslims, and and that means Jews and Christians uh, for you know, polytheists and so forth. There is no room 
in Islam at all, in the Islamic community. Okay, they paid the jizya, and let me finish the verse now, with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Okay, so there's, there's nothing voluntary here. This mm-hmm. is not just the religions cooperating with each other. Mm-hmm. This is not a matter of uh, we accept Jews and Christians on an equal footing and we respect their faith and so forth. It is they're not Muslims. They are tolerated, but definitely as second-ranked people in the community who have to pay an extra tax or, to go back to the beginning of the verse, they need to be fought against. It is right. with violence. So, to to come back to your original question on this point then, uh, not all Islamic groups are as radical as the Qutbites. The Quran does not teach directly conversion by force, but it leaves the door open to uh, conversion by force interpreted as a just defense of Islam, and that also includes Jews and Christians. Let me uh, let's let's open up the phone lines uh, now. We've got 20 minutes left uh, for those who may have um, some questions. We want you guys to call in seven six zero. Five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. And uh, I wasn't sure, Doctor Cordwin, were you were you about to wrap up on on that section, or did you have more to add? Or uh, no, I'm at a, a point where I, I think we have pretty much uh, gotten to the point of frying our brains. If I I mean, that's a lot of information that I've run past you. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, what I was thinking, uh, and I'll I'll leave this up to you, Uh, I came across a website the other day called, um, it's like islamcity.com, and they have a list of uh, 60 questions for Christians to answer. And I Mm -hmm. thought, you know, we might have some, some Muslims listening to our show uh, you know, it's going to be podcasted, so I'm sure the, the, the show will get around. Maybe we can tackle some of these questions in the remaining 20 minutes. Certainly. Um, it's basically about the, the divinity of Jesus and stuff. Certainly. So would that be okay with you? Certainly, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, one of the first questions they have um, says, To be son is to be less than divine, and to be divine is to be... Uh, no one's son. How could Jesus have the attributes of sonship and divinity all together? I know a lot of Muslims have these these questions. Uh, what yeah. would you say to that? Well, you know, they need to do, people who ask those questions need to do the same thing that I'm trying to do, namely to study the other religion for what it teaches. Okay, right. it's, it's an important 
point here. I mean, I, I get tired of Christians saying things about Islam that aren't true, and there's so many falsehoods circulating on the Internet. But uh, Islam, or Muslims, also ought to study exactly what Christianity says and then uh, not attack a straw man, but direct the criticisms against what Christianity actually teaches. Now, we begin with a tri-unity. Okay? We believe that God is one, one nature. We don't believe that God exists in three parts, or there are right. three gods. We're not cutting an apple into three parts or putting three apples into one bag, but there is only one nature, and that is God. So Christianity is monotheistic. Okay, and anyone who does not want to acknowledge that uh, it can go on, but they're not talking to me any longer because they're not talking about what I believe. I mean, it's right. just like if Christians say, uh, if Christians make an argument against oh, uh, the Muslims worshiping Muhammad or that idea that Allah is a moon god, which comes up every once in a while, I mean, those... Those are not what Muslims believe, and it's just a straw man. So, Christianity is a monotheism, one God, one nature, to go with uh, Dr. Geisler's terminology, one what, in three persons. Now, they share the nature of God equally. And uh, we say that there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we do not believe that the Son was somehow procreated by God in, in a sexual manner, which is another big misunderstanding, but that the Son is functionally as a different person, different from the Father, but that he holds to his deity equally as, uh, as the Father. Okay, that's what we believe. So uh, that, that should be the centerpiece of the criticism. Okay, we do not believe that Christ became the Son of God because the Holy Spirit and Mary had sexual intercourse. Uh, the, the Quran says uh, it Mary was a virgin and she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. And that's exactly what the Bible says as well. It was a matter of the power of God, not the semen of God, if I may use such a terrible expression. And uh -huh. uh, so the, the second person of the Trinity has existed all along, and then he joined himself to a human nature. So now there is in the Son one nature, I'm sorry, two natures in the one person, but 
by being a human being on earth, that does not make him inferior in his divine nature, except insofar as he has given up some prerogatives while he is on earth, but uh, his actual deity is not affected in the least. At all. So that's what right. we believe, and uh, you know, I cannot defend anything that's uh, that's uh, not consonant with with what we accept as true. Right, absolutely. Um, kind of going along with that question, and I, I've actually heard um, uh, Ahmad Dida use this a lot in some of his debates. They they bring this up. Uh, if Jesus was God, why did he tell the man who called him good master not to call him good? Because accordingly, there is none good but his God in heaven alone. The so did young you get that? Man, yeah, I got it. Okay. <laughs> the young man was... Uh, a little bit confused. And uh, he was using the word good in an indiscriminate way. Now, if he had actually recognized Jesus as God, then it would have been appropriate. Jesus was not really denying that he was God, but he was telling the young man, don't call me God unless you know that I am God, in so many words. In the, in the, you, you know, got to look at the, the whole conversation in context. And in the whole context, Jesus was exposing his, uh, well, I don't want to call it hypocrisy, but uh, his superficiality. And uh, right. was showing that he's not thinking really about the terms that he is using. Jesus alone is, yeah. Agathos is the word that's being used there, I believe, in the Greek. Uh, God alone is Agathos. And so if you're going to call Jesus Agathos, then uh, you had better reckon with the fact that he is God and not just a master. So uh, I, I think the folks are, are not catching the, the irony in how Jesus is replying there. Yeah, in a similar case in point. A similar case in point would be when Jesus raised the paralytic who had been let down through the roof. Uh, you know, the, the, the Pharisees sitting there were thinking, uh, who can forgive sins except God alone? And Jesus right. said, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. So in order for you to know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say to the man, rise up and walk. So it's the same kind of logic. You're right, only God has this attribute, and then he demonstrates that he has that attribute. Yeah, I think by those type of rhetorical questions, uh, it's really Jesus is underscoring the fact of, hey, I, you know, I am God, uh, you shouldn't use use the word you know good uh, just so you know haphazardly in applying them to people when only God is when only God is good. Correct. Mm -hmm. So I, I like like your explanations on that. Very good. 
Uh, another one that had came up that I, I think this would be very good to uh, to tackle is um, if God had wanted to save us, couldn't he have done that without sacrificing Jesus? In other words, did Jesus have to die on the cross uh, in order to atone for people's sin? Well, um, the answer is going to be no, obviously. And now I have to say something that uh, any Muslim listeners will have to forgive me for saying, but this is what I believe as a Christian. We see here a very distinct difference between Allah of Islam and God of the New Testament. Allah is said to be sovereign and holy and transcendent and so forth, but what Muslims apparently don't realize is that that means that there can be no sin in the presence of God. Okay, we read in 1 John 1.5 concerning God in the New Testament that he is light and in him is no darkness at all. We are sinful and we cannot be in God's divine presence. Now, in the Quran, uh, you have a story of a fall. Adam ate of a fruit. And so the fellowship with God was broken. And uh, then God educated him a little bit more. And Adam followed God's instructions. And uh, then he became God's prophet again. And everything was forgiven and forgotten. Okay, so Allah is merciful. But there is a weak understanding of sin and of the effects of sin, and if I may say so without meaning to offend, of God's holiness and purity. If God can just accept sinners back in their sinful state and have direct fellowship with them, then uh, there's something wrong with the picture. Now, of course, the whole idea of fellowship with God is uh, not as clearly articulated in Islam. But if Christianity holds that God is holy and God cannot accept human beings back without something being done of, about human sin. And consequently, an atonement had to be made so that human sins could be forgiven. And so Allah is merciful, God is gracious, and he sent his son to die for our sins. Now, you can't possibly say that uh, God is less caring than Allah if he sent his son as an atonement. Mm. I mean, that... <laughs> It, it's not that God is somehow being legalistic, but God is being unbelievably loving. I mean, the very holy God.
God who created the universe sent his son as a sacrifice for our sin. Mm -hmm. So that simply by accepting what he has done on the cross, we can become his children. Now, that's, that's not a God who just makes things hard on us. That's a God who made things hard on himself out of pure love for us. And it's a God who does not overlook sin because his holiness does not permit it, but a God who provides for our righteousness out of his own uh, initiative. Yeah, and that, that is a fundamental difference between Islam and uh and Christianity. Uh, I just wanna underscore that. That is that is that is huge. That is such a difference. Islam so. if I may go on just a little bit uh Islam ultimately sees every human being as taking a final exam with their life. Okay, according to Islam, every person is born a Muslim, and then your life is a test of whether you're going to live as a Muslim or not. And obviously, people who live in Muslim countries have a big advantage on others. But the problem is, you're being given the final exam before the lectures are done. And so you're constantly being tested. And the Quran says, uh, God will deliberately make things hard on you so that you can show that you submit to him, i.e. be a Muslim. Mm. And even then, if you try your hardest you still cannot profess assurance of salvation because there is no redemption. There, there is hope in the usual meaning, like I hope the sun shines tomorrow, wishful thinking, and uh, you know, some believe that God is merciful, but there is no assurance because everything depends on whether you measure up to Allah and ultimately it is up to him and him alone to decide. He may have decided to overlook Adam's sin, but it's totally within his prerogative not to overlook your sin. Hmm. Well, very, very good. Dr. Cordwin, um, let's all, I'll let you go ahead and, and uh, yeah. give us some final concluding thoughts. Yeah, I was just going to, uh, Dr. Cordwin, thank you so much for being here. The time has really flown by, but you've just given us so much wonderful information that we can uh, meditate on and study deeper and ways that we can minister to our Muslim friends. Um, and we're, we're just very, very grateful that you were um took the time to, to be with us and to share this wonderful information for studying so much um, so that we all can be informed. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I hope I didn't cram too much information in. And uh, let me just say, if I may, by closing, what do we do about all of this? 
we preach the gospel. Amen. I mean, there is nothing, I mean, nobody is a target, but we are all sinners in need of salvation by Christ. And whether you're a Muslim or a Methodist who does not believe in Christ makes no difference. What we do is hold up the same Jesus on the cross for everyone. Amen. And we are we definitely need to share the gospel with our Muslim friends and with everyone that we come in contact with who does not know the Lord. And we encourage you to do that. Go back and listen to the podcast. Share it with friends. And again, Dr. Cordon, we thank you so much for being with us today. And thanks for coming. Come back. Thank you. Bye bye. God bless you, Dr. Cordon. And we will see you all next week for another episode of Theology Matters. Thanks so much for listening in. God bless. God bless. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian is not optional Cause when you talk about Christ You're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays his majesty Or it's a travesty Or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search This mark is crucial to the health of a local church The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key It's following the Bible storyline And the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine What he starts, he finishes with dedication A work of art from Genesis to Revelation From God's creation To man's fall to redemption to consummation His designs and structure each time will fluster What mind can instruct the divine conductor His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. You, Lord. He gave us the word, providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection. 
from ourselves and our improper reflections So we can follow the Bible, not just our affections Otherwise we will chop it into sections And not make the connections like the doctrine of election And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat If our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep Theology is like the root of a tree Which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be And by God's grace he'll breathe on us with his breath Lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless And we'll experience true peace within our depth Because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology 